As we begin our time in God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the worship that we've already enjoyed. Lord, we thank you for the songs, for the scripture, for the prayers that have been offered. Lord, as we come to this time of uh, preaching, as we come to this time of study, Lord, I pray that you would work through the words that are preached, through the word that is read, that we might be changed. Lord, I pray that we would be sharpened so that we would not be uh, misled or, or led astray by false teachers and deceivers. And that you would help us to, uh, that this scripture would encourage us to know your word and to be able to identify errors in, in what is being taught. Father, I pray that you would bless us now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 16 as we come to the end of the book of Romans. This will be my last sermon on the book of Romans. And we've been working through since the beginning of the year this very meaningful, beautiful epistle of uh, Paul that he has written to a church that he doesn't know. He hopes to come and visit them at some point, but he does not know the people of the church of Rome. But he does know one thing that is going to be a challenge for them, and that's a challenge that he is going to give to them or a warning that he is going to give to them in our passage this morning from Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. Paul wants to give one final warning to the Roman church. He's gone through all this beautiful doctrine. He's taught uh, in uh, chapters 1 through 11 about the essence of the gospel and how salvation works and how we can be saved through another way of righteousness, and that is righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's shown uh, from chapter 12 through chapter 15 how we're to live sacrificially in this world that our bodies, our minds, everything about us is to be presented to God as a living sacrifice. And that means that we give up our own preferences and desires for the good of others. It means that we use our gifts and our talents for the edification of the church. It means that we uh, give sacrificially for missions, for the sake of missions. Uh, It means all of those things. And so now he comes to the end of the book and he wants to warn the Roman church of something that is likely to happen in their church because it happens everywhere and it has happened in every church that even Paul has started. And so let's read together Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. Verse 17, God's word says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that I have taught that you have been taught avoid them for such persons do not serve our lord christ but their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive for your obedience is known to all so that i rejoice over you but i want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So from our passage today, I want to look at three points, very simple points. First of all, the sins of the deceivers. Second, the signs of deceivers. And third, the simple rules of faithfulness. So the sins of deceivers, the signs of deceivers, and the simple rules of faithfulness. So first, let's consider the sins of deceivers from verse 17. 
As Paul ends his letter to the church at Rome, he wants them to understand a final warning that is a pattern that develops in every faithful Christian church. It's been in every church that I've experienced, or I've seen glimpses of it at least in every church that I've experienced. And it's even come up in every church that Paul has established. Paul has seen this pattern that's arisen in every church that he's established that after a few years, divisions begin to arise over the influence of some new teaching that comes into the church. So, for example, in the church of Galatia, Jewish leaders had come into the church teaching that Gentile believers had to be circumcised in in order to be truly saved. In the churches of Corinth and Ephesus, Gnostic philosophers on the other end of the spectrum had come into the church claiming that they needed a deeper spiritual knowledge and that they needed to either uh, give over their bodies to their lust or they needed to give up everything, including marriage. And so Paul recognized that these heretics and charlatans could usually be identified by the sins that they were given to. And so he warns the Romans because he doesn't know them, but he knows that this pattern is going to show up in their church, just like it shows up in every faithful church, because Satan has habits that he always brings up in every church. He warns them to watch out, to watch for these deceivers. Now, the Greek word for watch out, I like this word particularly because of what how we use it today. The Greek word for Watch out is scopio, which is where we get the word scope. So the scope that you put on your rifle. You can think of that when you think of what Paul means by scope, uh, to watch or to scopio. It's the idea of spying on or watching or marking out. So just like you get a deer in your target, in your, in your crosshairs, in a scope, It's the same idea that believers are to diligently watch out for. We're to diligently spy out or to mark out those who have a pattern of sin. And there are two specific sins that Paul says these deceivers or these false teachers or heretics that they tend to commit. First, they tend to cause division. Now, the idea of division here is disunity or rebellion against the established truth of the gospel. Now, I want you to understand that sometimes division and disunity are necessary for the sake of the gospel. I want to be clear that I'm not saying that we should pursue unity at the cost of truth. Uh, That is never something that the Bible or the New Testament or Paul condones. But Rather, the idea is someone who has a pattern of causing division, always stirring up something, always bringing division into a church. But sometimes we have to stand for what is right. We have to face down culture or face down a false teaching that has come into the church. We have to do that. But the person that Paul has in mind here is not a Martin Luther who sought to correct the error of the gospel message that had risen in the church, but rather more of a Jerry Falwell Jr., who is always stirring up division, always driving a wedge between uh, members of the church, always causing division even among brothers and sisters in Christ. 
So let this stand as a warning to you individually in this church. If you have a tendency towards the negative, or if you just generally find fault in anything and everything, let me, uh, let me explain it and say it as clearly as I, say, as I can. It is wrong to sow division within the body of Christ. Period. Full stop. It is wrong to sow division within the body of Christ. It is wrong to think poorly of your brothers and sisters in Christ or to always assume the worst before you verify and prove out what has been said. It is wrong to think poorly of your deacons or of your pastor. It is wrong to complain just because things aren't perfectly the way you want them to be or they aren't the way you've always uh, they've always been. It is wrong to pursue division for division's sake and to pursue the negative just because that's the way you tend to react anytime something comes up. Second, Paul warns to watch for those who create obstacles. Now, the word for obstacle literally means a scandal. Uh, so where divisions deal with beliefs and practices, obstacles deal with accepted sins. So this is the idea of a church member who flaunts his or her sin and he either forces the church to implicitly accept that sin by ignoring it or even endorse it explicitly. Now, we see this happen all the time nowadays. It seems like every week I read an article or see something on social media about a church or a denomination that has either cowered in fear to the pressure of the LGBT community or who has come to openly endorse its message. Just the other day, I saw a video on Twitter of an Episcopal Church's children's sermon in which the pastor invited a transgendered drag queen to come talk to the children in front. There's actually only two children in that church, apparently, but it invited them to talk to those two children about his disorder. And the pastor used, had the audacity to use Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which says, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed, right? They, he used that as an endorsement of the sinful delusion of transgenderism. Now, it's obvious how that could be an obstacle to those two children sitting at the front of that church listening to that message. Everything about Christianity was scandalized right there in front of their eyes. But these obstacles don't have to be so radical as all that. Churches for years have overlooked or looked away from the practice of no-fault divorce and just ignored members of a church that pursue that without any hint of guidance without any hint of discipline from the church. We have looked the other way as couples have lived together without the first thought of getting married. We have turned a blind eye to abuse in the church, either by its leaders or by other members in the church. We have pretended as though racial hatred is just a cultural thing and excusable because of that. We create, as church members and as a church as a whole, we create obstacles in our condoning of sin 
wherever we allow it to fester out in the open. So Paul directs that we are to watch out for these deceitful sins. But he doesn't just stop there. I want you to notice how he ends the verse in verse 17. He says to watch out for these sins and to what? Avoid them. The the word avoid there literally means to run away from or to shun. We are to shun those who practice these deceitful sins. Now, this is a reference to church discipline, which is a practice that the modern church is afraid to talk about, but it's a practice that is commanded everywhere in the New Testament. Of those who create scandal in the church, Paul commands in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, Let him who has done this be removed from you. With respect to the person who would stir up division in the church, Paul instructs in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Even on a personal level, church members should not even show hospitality to a deceiver who stirs division or who creates scandal. So if there's someone who is living in public sin, there's someone who is teaching false teaching, you're not even supposed to say hey to them, according to Scripture. Second uh, John verse 10 says, John directs the church there to say by saying, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. We are to take seriously the doctrine of the church and the lifestyle of faithful Christian living. We are to watch out for those who sow divisions and create scandal, and we are to shun them for the sake of clarity and unity in the church. So how do you recognize a deceiver in the midst of the church? How do you, maybe you, uh, the sin isn't so obvious, but you want to make sure that you recognize those who are deceivers. Paul gives us some signs of a deceiver in verse 18. So I want you to see the second point, which is the sign or the signs of the of a deceiver. Paul gives three signs of deceivers that are helpful even for us today. And I've seen this pattern again in every church that I've been in. There has been someone who exhibits these signs in every ministry that I've been in. First, He says that such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. Now, if you don't take anything else away from what I say today, I want you to take this. So hear me clearly and understand this simple measure of the truthfulness of some new teaching or fresh word that comes into this church. I want you to understand one simple way that you can tell whether someone is a false teacher or not. Does their teaching magnify Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, or does it magnify themselves? If you turn on a TV station to Christian TV, and that person talks more about his ministry and what he's done for the Lord and the authority that he has as a pastor or whatever it may be, and you never hear him or rarely hear him mention Jesus Christ, then he is a false teacher and you are to shun him. If someone comes into this church 
teaching something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you can't ever seem to get him to go to talk about the gospel, then he is a false teacher and we are to shun him. As Paul says, even if an angel from heaven comes teaching anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is anathema. He is accursed. And we are to shun them. So a simple measure is if anyone, whether they be a pastor, an evangelist, a teacher, a church dignitary, or whomever, claims to rightly understand the word of God, but that man or woman never talks about Jesus, never mentions the cross or the resurrection, then run or run him out. May be the better thing to do. Second, these deceivers are led by, as Paul says, their own appetites. Now, the the term appetite is actually not what that word means in the best translation. It actually, he says, they are led by their bellies, which I like that better um, because I understand that better. They're led by their bellies. So you can always identify a deceiver by his cravings. We talked about that this morning in, in Sunday school. Most often, often these cravings are revealed in three ways. First, sexual desires. Second, wealth. And third, power. And usually, they all three show up in the same person. A deceiver is going to make himself known in one of, if not all three, of those ways. Does he talk too much about sex? make crude crude jokes, or seem too sweet on women, or sadly enough in our day I have to say this, or men for that matter? Does he hold his hand uh, out after every sermon expecting to be paid? Does he whine about his salary or seem overly concerned about budgets and tithing? Is he domineering or belittling? Does he talk a great deal about his authority as a preacher or as a pastor? Does he make much of himself and his calling? I warn you right now, watch out for people who show a pattern for any of these in their lives. Finally, a dead ringer for a deceiver in the church is smooth talk and flattery. I love that phrase. Smooth talk and flattery. It seems so easy to identify someone, but let me warn you, to me, this is the point at which deceivers gain the greatest foothold in the church, is with smooth talk and flattery. Paul says that a a habit that a deceiver has, a sign that a deceiver has, is that they will find those who are naive, those who are maybe young in the faith, those who are, you know, some people are just ready, ready to believe anybody. And they will flatter those person, those people and they will smooth talk them into believing them. And let me just point out that we as Christians, we have a certain language, right? We talk about salvation and the end times and resurrection and fellowship and we call each other brothers and sisters and, and all that. We have a certain language. And I hate to say this, but be wary of someone who, uh, in which theological words drip from their mouth like honey. What I mean by that 
If you talk to someone who is always brother this and sister that, they're always patting you on the back, they're always buttering you up, they're always building you up. Now that's good, and it's good to build people up. Don't get me wrong. But you know what I'm talking about. That person that is slick, he's always uh, using super spiritual language to, to in, in every conversation. Usually that person is using you and flattering you and smooth talking you so that you will believe them to be more spiritual than they are and so that you will listen to them when they start to turn the dial towards deception. So be wary of someone who can't just talk normal, who's always talking uh, overly flourishing about uh, spiritual things. Not that we shouldn't, but just that sometimes it drips too much. And sometimes when it drips too much, there's a leak, right? Um, They do all of that, I think, to, and Paul does too, to gain the support of those who are naive, those who are easily misled, and when they do, they have a foothold within the church. So how are we to defend against such deception? Paul gives two rules for faithfulness that I want you to see in verses 19 and 20. First, we are to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. In other words, we're to practice our own faith with such a fervor that we pursue that that is good and we minimize or run away from that which is evil. We should not dwell on those things that might call us to stumble and cause us to fall into sin. We should not uh, we should avoid those things that are obviously evil and not give air to them or give them an opportunity to take root in our own lives. But when it comes to that which is good, we should know all that we can about it. We should understand how best to live in faithfulness. We should devote ourselves, as we studied today in Sunday school, we should devote ourselves to understanding Scripture. We should devote our lives to faithful worship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We should commit to use uh, to the using of our gifts for the good of the church. Second, from verse 20, we should rest in the promise of God and wait on its fulfillment. Paul reminds the Romans that God will one day crush the head of the serpent and that they should patiently wait for that day. Now look, most false teaching, most deception that rises up in the church, quite honestly, rises up because people grow tired of waiting on the Lord's return. There's a young man in the 1820s, a 14-year-old boy named Joseph, who became frustrated with the denominational differences of his day. And so he struck out into the mountains of New York to go ponder the true religion. And he came down from that mountain claiming to have had an experience with an angel named Mormo who revealed these golden tablets of this new scripture that he needed to translate. And he led a band of followers west to Missouri where he established the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or as we know them, the Mormons. Joseph Smith checked all the boxes 
for a deceiver. He was good looking. He was a smooth talker. He could, in many cases, talk his way out of just about any situation. He created scandal wherever he went. And he was a known womanizer. In fact, he conveniently developed the doctrine of polygamy within the Mormon church so that he could marry other people's wives. That's the whole reason that they practiced polygamy for so long. And he sowed division wherever he went. His answer to the differences in denominations was to break entirely from the Christian church and develop his own set of scriptures. All of this developed because men could not wait for the Lord to fulfill his promises. They grew tired of waiting on the Lord. They grew tired of living the faithful Christian life. They grew tired of being dependent on scripture and the faithful worship of God's people. And they decided to do something different. They decided they needed something new. And most often, false teaching and cults and deceptions of all kinds arise because people grow tired of being faithful. They grow tired of waiting on the Lord to fulfill His promises. So, brothers and sisters, we must wait on the Lord to do what He has promised. As we sang, I love that on Jordan's Stormy Banks, because it talks of our walk in the Lord, our faithful life in the Lord as being a pilgrimage towards the promised land. And just like we sang in that song, we're waiting on the banks of the river Jordan with our feet on the, in the sand, waiting to cross into the promised land. And our calling as Christians in this day and age is to wait faithfully, to watch diligently for false teaching, to shun, to avoid that which is wrong, and to cling to that which is right, and to wait on the Lord. May we be found faithfully doing that when the Lord does return. And brothers and sisters, He will return. As Paul says, one day He will crush the head of Satan. And we need to faithfully wait until that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the promises of Scripture that we have, that You will return to bring all things into completion. And Lord, we do faithfully wait for that day. Lord, give us a sense of fervor, a sense of boldness, a sense of confidence as we rest and wait uh, for You to fulfill Your promises. Lord, may we be watchful of false teaching. May we see deception for what it is. May we not give it air to breathe uh, because we hear flowery language or someone uh, speaks well of us in the church. May we be wise in uh, what the signs of deceivers are and may we identify them and shun them. Father, I pray that we would be found faithful as we wait on you. pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.